0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. The reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 1 and 2. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit But also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Again, our framework uh, for studying Philippians is do nothing, uh, gain everything, give anything. Think about Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. By Jesus' initiative, Uh, Zacchaeus was up in a tree, just curious and interested about this man, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't knock on the door of his heart. He invites himself into his heart. And he goes in and it says that Zacchaeus received him. So Zacchaeus received everything by grace. And then after doing nothing and gaining everything, Zacchaeus became radically generous and radically just. He says, in light of who you are, Jesus, in light of what you have given to me, I give away half of what I have to the poor And for every unjust act I have committed in the past, I give restitution fourfold. That's do nothing, gain everything, give anything. Think again about our call to worship this morning from Luke chapter 18. This is Jesus' teaching Of a parable. If you come to worship at the Lord's house with something in your hand to recommend yourself to Him, like behavior or resume or money or appearance or reputation or how you might look compared to others, if you come in this manner, you walk away condemned, not justified. You get nothing. But if you come beating your chest, refusing to presumptively lift your eyes, Knowing that if you ha- knowing that you have nothing to commend yourself to God, if you come in this fashion, knowing that you deserve nothing, God in the gospel lifts up your face, He looks you in the eye, and he gives you everything worth having starting with himself. This is uh, the framework, the picture, the phrase, the paradigm through which we are studying the book of Philippians. and so this morning we'll continue on at the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, and again, towards the end of the sermon, I'll come back around uh, to our framework and I'll try and, and show you this reality Yet again. Okay, so now uh, remember that Paul is under house arrest in Rome. He's awaiting a capital trial, and he's writing the church or the group of Christians that is generally uh, agreed upon as being the most mature uh, audience to which Paul writes in his uh, incredibly uh, prolific ministry. Okay, this is the most mature audience to whom Paul writes. Uh, In this letter, he addresses heresy, but it's not uh, within the body. It's outside of the body. Uh, In in this letter, Paul does not need to address any rank or abject behavior. Uh, Think about uh, in Corinth. He writes uh, to the church in Corinth, and there's a man there uh, having relations uh, with his dad's wife. I'll let you figure that one out. And worse than that, the part that Paul's really upset about is that the church is glorying in it, boasting about it, bragging about this reality. So this morning, we come to Paul's number one concern for this mature church in Philippi. And that concern is this, unity, oneness, peace within the body, intimacy, his number one concern. If you just kind of let your eyes lazily fall across the passage that's in the worship folder insert, you're going to see the apostle calling for them to be in one spirit chapter 1, verse 27, one mind, which is literally one-souled, chapter 1, verse 27. Then literally he does say, I want you to be one-minded, chapter 2, verse 2. Paul commands them to stand firm together, chapter 1, 27, strive side by side, that they would be like-souled, which is uh, given in our uh, translations in full accord in chapter 2, verse 2. So Paul is looking for the Philippians to be unified. Uh, to be one for them to watch out for and, and put behind them unnecessary internal conflict unnecessary internal conflict uh, Paul knows and we know that some conflict in a healthy church is is necessary but Paul is going to address here unnecessary internal conflict and I'll show you what I mean by that in a little bit but for now quite simply for a new city to become more unified, for us to become more one, for us to uh, become uh, enjoy a greater intimacy, uh, we have to see and understand the result of unnecessary internal conflict that we might hate it, the result the reasons uh, that we might address it, and the remedy uh, for these unnecessary internal conflicts that we might be cured, okay the result the reasons. And the remedy. All right, so we're going to start. The result of unnecessary internal conflict that we might in our hearts hate it. If you look at why Paul calls the Philippians to unity, uh, you can pick up on what happens when unity is not present. Or or said a little differently, if you look at why Paul calls the Philippians to oneness, uh, you can see what the result is if unnecessary internal conflict is present. Verse 27 In one spirit, Stand firm. With one mind, strive or fight side by side. Verse 28. Uh, Be one so that you are not frightened by your opponent. Uh, chapter 1, verse 30. The Philippians are engaged in the same conflict or the same struggle, the same war they saw in Paul. So here's the irony, okay? Okay. Paul wants the Philippians unified internally so they can effectively fight externally. All believers at all times have been and are part of the ultimate battle between good and evil, between light and dark, between peace and rupture, between the new city and the old city, between the kingdom of God and the dominion of darkness, between God and Satan. And Paul is going to teach us this morning that the result of being caught up in in unnecessary internal conflict is this. Whether we're fighting with a spouse or fighting with a brother or fighting with a coworker or someone in our small group or someone in another church, being caught up in that conflict makes us ineffective in the ultimate battle and renders us vulnerable in that battle. Ineffective and vulnerable. All right, I'm gonna share with you something I think is really cool about the original context and then we're going to ask a few questions of our text to make sure we understand how to apply this appropriately, okay? Something what I think is really cool about the original context, if you read Ephesians 6, if you read in this letter, if you read in other letters, whenever Paul discusses the Christian life as war, he uses phrases and vocabulary and imagery that the original audience would have automatically associated with the Roman military, okay? The Roman military was world famous and is historically famous for effectiveness and efficiency. So when Paul uses the language, stand firm, strive side by side, not being frightened, engaging the conflict, the original audiences, their minds would have run to the Roman military. They would have pictured a Roman century, a a Roman cohort, a Roman company of soldiers. Okay, The, the Roman army always lined up in rows of 10. A century, for example, uh, was anywhere from 60 to 100 soldiers. So it would be six to 10 rows of 10. When the enemy would attack with wild and reckless abandonment, the captain or the centurion would call out for the soldiers to not be frightened. Literally, he would say, don't run for the hills like a skittish horse. Same words that Paul uses in our text. The first row of 10 soldiers would align their shields together, forming a unified wall. The ten warriors behind the front line would be commanded to stand firm, that should sound familiar, by putting their shoulder into the back of the warriors holding the front shields. Each line of soldiers after them all the way to the back would also lean into and provide support to the line in front of them. No doubt the front line would have been run over had it not been for those standing firm behind them. But once the enemy ran headlong into the shields, the commander would call for six to eight-inch gaps to be opened up in the shields, and the soldiers on the second row would spear the enemy. And then the entire century would advance, engage, and strive side by side. In that context, making progress for Rome. Paul is saying this. Internal conflict in the church is like lining up in battle and being under attack, but not having your shields up facing the enemy because you have to have your shield up to protect yourselves from one another. He's saying that instead of advancing against darkness and evil, striving proactively for the faith of the gospel, he says unnecessary internal conflict is striving with one another. He says that instead of having others there to stand us up and hold us firm when attacked, We're isolated and we're vulnerable and we're essentially defenseless against a power more powerful than any one of us, but less powerful than Jesus in his community. So I thought that was pretty cool about the original context. I think that's pretty uh, wild how Paul describes the body being unified internally so that we can effectively fight externally. So a couple of questions I want to make sure we understand how to apply this language to our lives, okay? Uh, just a few clarifying points. Who, who were the opponents in verse 28 to which Paul refers? Quite simply, um, they are Roman non-believers and most likely Roman authorities in Philippi. If you look down uh, at verse 30, Paul says that the Philippians are engaged in the same conflict they saw him have, past tense, and now hear that he still has, present tense, So as Paul writes this letter, he he is imprisoned by Roman authorities. But more than that, in Acts chapter 16, uh, you read the the recording of the planting of this church in Philippi. This is what Paul is referencing when he says, you saw me have this conflict in the past. In that story, uh, the Philippians had seen Paul and Silas uh, be arrested and beaten and imprisoned by local authorities. And they were thrown in jail uh, because the crowds were angry with them uh, because they had exercised a demon from a slave girl. And the only problem was that the slave girl was making making her owners significant amount amounts of money uh, through divination. And so so Paul's saying, same opponent. Same opponent. That's who we're that's who we're up against. That's in a sense who we're fighting. But secondly, how does Paul Want them to fight. What does it look like for Christians to fight? Is Paul wanting them to like put their money together and buy some spears and some shields and um, like either buy or download uh, Roman military for dummies? I mean, is he looking for them to equip themselves for physical battle? Similarly, are we supposed to like buy ground-to-air missiles, uh, pistols, drones? Is this should this be part of the 2013 budget uh, for our church? This is crucial, because that's expensive. We'd have to start talking about it. (laughs) All right? No. Not physical fighting. Paul describes the fight in verse 29. He says, this is the nature of your fighting. For it has been granted, bestowed by the king, generously given to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe, so faith is a generous gift from God, but you should also suffer for his sake. Suffering, another generous gift from God. Paul, Paul encourages them to engage the war just like he did years before. Acts chapter 16. Paul was physically seized and dragged to court. He only spiritually exercised a demon. Paul and Silas were falsely accused, verbally attacked with many words. Paul and Silas only sang hymns and prayed prayers. Paul and Silas were, uh, had their clothes torn off of them, uh, had their uh, backs ripped open with the beating of rods, thrown into the inner prison, shackles on their feet. But Paul only evangelized, protected, and baptized the same Roman jailer who had ripped his flesh apart. This is what Paul means when he says standing firm. Striving together side by side, not running from frightening realities. This is how the kingdom of God advances in the world. So, again, we're just thinking, we just think it's a little bicker, a little fight, just a little tiff between me and you. And Paul's inviting us to see the actual result of unnecessary internal conflict, it decreases our ability to withstand attack. And it robs us of the opportunity to actively advance the kingdom of light against darkness. Some of our neighbors and our co-workers and our relatives and fellow students are living in darkness. Enslaved by Satan, headed in the direction of eternal agony. They are ours to share Jesus with. Ours to bring hope to. Ours to rescue But Paul teaches if we're busy mounting an attack on another believer or defending ourselves from another's attack, we'll have no energy to engage the enemy and rescue the enslaved. So that's the end of chapter 1. From 40,000 feet, Paul is redundantly and passionately, he's calling for unity. He's calling for a decrease in internal conflict so that the Philippians may engage well the external conflict. So if you look at chapter 2, Uh, verses 3 and 4, you'll see a few commands from the apostle, okay? And he's saying if you'll follow these commands, uh, um, a unity will increase, uh, unnecessary conflict will decrease, okay? And so for our purposes, we're going to spend a lot of time on what Paul commands us to not do because tucked away at the beginning of verse Three um, is Paul's understanding and explanation to us of where unnecessary internal conflict comes from. So these are the reasons. I'm about to tell us the reasons we fight. I'm going to tell you what Paul says is the reason we fight. All right? Chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition and conceit are the sources of, Of internal conflict. So now listen, we're going to have to unpack these. These words are incredibly rich. They're both compound words in the original language. They're very hard to really accurately and fully uh, translate. This is crucial, though. If you pick up five different translations, you'll probably get 10 different words uh, given to you uh, for these two words, okay? So we're going to spend some time understanding this. Selfish ambition is the Greek word arethea. Okay, arethea is sometimes in your translations given as strife, sometimes selfishness, sometimes rivalry, but most literally it means hyper fighter. Hyper fighter. I think the best way to translate this is spirit of rivalry. Um, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. Uh, a lot would say, including me, he's one of the most uh, uh, famous um, and influential Christian thinkers uh, of our time, okay? I actually prefer his sermons before the year 2000 because I understand them, um, so I like to listen to them, uh, and he has one in 1995, and he says this about this word. He said, it's one thing to fight in order to live, but this is a spirit that lives to fight. There's a big difference between fighting to live and living to fight. The hyper-fighter takes everything personally. Nothing is simple, factual, and external. Everything is internal and worth fighting for. Also in 1995, Garth Brooks, which is actually who I was listening to in 1995, wrote this song, Two of a Kind Working on a Full House, to which I was surprised I can still sing every lyric of, there's one line in there. If you just kind of take it out and divorce it from the rest of the song, uh, it describes hyperfighting. It says we fight just so we can make up. There's a difference between fighting to live and living to fight. A while ago, I was leading two friends uh, through premarital training. One of them said this. It was incredibly profound. She said, "I've recently realized that God wants us, the couple." to be on the same team. But I think my paradigm for this relationship is competition. As if the two of us are on opposite sides engaged in a struggle. And then they looked at me and they said, why do I do that? Essentially asking, why are we hyper fighters? Well, Paul says in the second word, in verse 3, why we hyper fight. All of us do it. Some of us passive aggressively. Some of us uh, active aggressively. Uh, but we all fight. Hyperfighting is a pattern of behavior. The word is a pattern for behavior. The next word is a heart reality in which the hyperfighting is rooted. This is why we fight. The word is given as conceit. But again, it's a Greek compound word. Keno doxia. Doxia is glory. In the Bible, glory means weight, weightiness, uh, to matter, to be significant, to be internally solid, to be something valuable that lasts forever. Keno means empty, hollow, useless, and vain. One of the oldest translations I think gets it best when it calls this word vain glory. Now, we hear vain and we think, oh, proud. That's vain as an object. But vain as an attribute means useless and empty and worthless. Empty, glory. Glory, hollowness. Glory, hunger. Quite simply, Paul says we hyperfight because of a deep emptiness at the core of who we are. Conflict that is necessary advances the whole. Unnecessary conflict advances me. So when you take these two together, Paul is saying that the unity of the body is endangered by men and women who fight in order to establish their identity, who argue for the purpose of achieving their value, who engage conflict in order to prove their their weight, in order to display their importance. So all of us, to some degree, exhibit this spirit of rivalry, Uh, this empty glory, but there are a few who epitomize this well. In school, it's the bully. In, In our workspace, it's two members of the team constantly fighting and wrestling and arguing, not in order to make the company great, but in order to make themselves great. And we think they're so full of themselves. And Paul says it's really because they're empty at the core. In small group, this is the person who always has to have, the, unless it's the pastor, okay? It's the person who has to have the last word, has to be heard and understood and right, who has to correct everyone else or restate what has already been said in a more clever way. The person who wants to bring up a theological debate no matter what the topic is. I mean, you could be talking about your recipe for guacamole and they'd be like, that reminds me of predestination. What do you think about <laughs> predestination? Let's wrestle this out. More personally, hyper-fighting and vainglory is when I will debate with Trisha, when I will argue with her. And there will come times in those arguments, rarely, not recently, rarely, that I'll realize that a certain point that I have is not true or not right. Or sometimes I realize I'm wrong in total. And at those times, why don't I just give in? Why don't I admit it? Why don't I own it? Why don't I just say, you know what, let's just stop and know that I'm wrong, and let's pray for our kids. Why do do I keep fighting? What matters most is not the truth or reality or relationship, but whether or not I win. Because by winning, I think I can fill up the weightlessness of my heart, the emptiness of my core, the eternal anonymity of my identity. Oftentimes I'll go home, I try every week to go home and find time uh, to pray for sermons. And I pray, frankly, uh, that the Spirit um, would guard um, Satan and not allow him to steal from our hearts the seeds planted. I will pray um, that if anything was true and good and beautiful, that your heart would grab a hold of it and enjoy it. That if I say uh, of the things, the many things I'm sure that I say that are wrong, I pray for God to kind of hit the delete button on that part of your hard drive. But, but I often have to repent for pug Pugnacious preaching. Pugnacious preaching is preaching to fight. That's just wrong. It's just gross. I mean, I, I remember, this is how sad my life is. I remember when I used to just get to repent for abject, horrible things. Now I have to repent for abject, horrible things and pugnacious preaching. It's horrible. In a sense... Paul is saying that the spirit of rivalry is not sourced in someone having too much of themselves, but in having no self at all, in having no glory at all, in living as if we have no weight, no glory, no matter, no matter, M-A-T-T-E-R, significance. Or is that A-R? You could say it like this. Do nothing from hyperfighting from a lack of, And then if you just keep reading in verse 3, but in humility, in lowliness of mind, count or reckon or calculate others as more significant. The word just means valuable, precious, weighty. Count others as more glorious than yourself. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also and more so to the interests of others. So if you just work your way back up through the text, this is what we've covered so far. Paul, Paul is saying this, you need to be unified and one in order to fight well the fight that matters. And in order to be unified, you can't hyperfight from a deep individual in, uh, internal emptiness. You, you can't live to fight in a clamoring for identity and worth. But instead, go ahead and calculate others as more valuable than yourselves and if all of you will look to the interests of others more than you do your own, the interdependent community will prosper and advance and strive and be victorious. So there you have it. The result uh, is being pummeled from the inside and the out, and the reason is hyperfighting flowing from glory hunger. All right. So what's the remedy? Remedy. How, how, how do we? Uh, how does unnecessary internal conflict? How is it cured? do we simply decide to stop? Just determine, I'm not going to fight anymore, and I'm going to be of one mind. Do we simply determine uh, to ignore the hunger pains for glory? Do we have to just decide that we're not important and never will be, and as soon as I figure that, that out, everything will go better? Do we have to just deal with the fact that we have no identity and never will? We have to just get used to the the flightiness of being foam on the wave, and as soon as that happens, everything will get better. That can't possibly work. Here's the problem. You were created for glory. By design, we ache for solidness. Made in the image and the likeness of God, we long to be eternal. We long to matter. We long to be something other than peripheral. We lo- in our blood is royalty. That's why you can't just decide to not matter. So what's the remedy? Is the solution in me validating you and you validating me? that we'll just validate one another, and as long as we we truly seek the interests of one another more than our own, we're going to be okay. That would be like uh, me giving one of my children a water pistol and asking them to fill up uh, the Grand Canyon. Won't work. The vacuum inside of you and me is God-sized. A human cannot fill it up. What's the remedy? Does Paul give us any instruction? What's the guidance? What's the hope? So look with me at chapter 2, verse 5. Just after, don't seek yourself. Invest yourself in others. Paul writes this. Have this mentality, this mind, this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ. So next week, we're going to talk about what this means. It means so much more than this. But Paul um, is at least saying this. That what he asks us to do for each other, we have done for us and in us by Jesus. That God never asks us to do anything that he hasn't done for us in Christ, and he never asks us to do anything that he's not going to do in us by his Holy Spirit. So if you go back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, you're going to see this explicitly. Go there if you would. So if you have any encouragement or strengthening in Jesus Christ, if you have any comfort uh, from agape, father, love, if you have any koinonia, fellowship in the Holy Spirit, uh, in summary, if you've received any affection and mercy from God, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So have the same mentality, have the same love, the same love as God. And now he says, be in full accord with one another and of one mind, With one another. And then he goes on, do nothing from hyper fighting and glory hunger. Why? Because you don't lack glory and meaning and identity and weight. You have more than you know what to do with. You just don't know it yet. Jesus doesn't say, Paul doesn't say, don't worry about your lack of glory. He says, you have more than you can possibly imagine. You're just not tapping into it. In the Gospel of John in chapter 17, Jesus, um, in what is known as the high priestly prayer, he is praying for his disciples, and then he starts to pray uh, for you and for me, for those who would uh, believe in the future. And this is right before he's arrested and crucified. This, listen to this prayer closely. It's uncanny. Father, I want them to be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you so that the world may believe the gospel. So he says, for the advancement of the kingdom, I want them to be unified. Sound familiar? He keeps praying. Chapter 17, verse 22, the glory, the weight, the significance, is what he says, the doxa, that you have given me, I give to them, so that they may be One, unified, intimate, at peace. So, as you and I are one, they can be one too. Jesus is basically saying this, Father, I'm going to give them the glory that I have so that they don't have to be hungry for glory, and then they can be one, and then the kingdom will advance. Just what Paul said. How does Jesus make us one, and how does he give us his glory? And again, we're going to study this in detail next week. But the mind of Christ that Paul says is ours in verse 5, he fleshes out in verses 6 through 11. Just listen to this. Let this fall on your ears. Though Jesus was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. He made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the shameful death of the cross. On the cross, Jesus was emptied of his glory, of his significance, of his honor, so that we could be filled with his glory, not by earning it, but by simply receiving it. We who deserve no glory at all Who honestly ought to waste away like foam on the sea forever. We ought to be forgotten and disremembered. We will be remembered and cherished and enjoyed forever by grace. Because the Son, the beautiful, perfect Son, was forgotten, cast aside, weightless. On the cross, Jesus screamed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, Father, we've been one forever. Why have you abandoned me? For God to embrace us totally, he had to utterly abandon Jesus. Lovers of Jesus, friends, children of God, you're not glory empty. You have more glory than you know what to do with. You're not weightless. You're heavier than you can possibly imagine. You're not a bankrupt pauper. You're a princess or a prince in the kingdom of God. We are not. Uh, we are not collectively a worthless woman of the night. We're the beautiful bride of Jesus. The grand canyon-sized glory of God has been poured into our thimble-sized heart, and we overflow. Paul's saying you can take an interest in one another because God's taken this interest in you. Paul's saying you can empty yourself out from one another. Jesus was emptied out for you. You don't have to be glory-hungry. You're glory-rich poured out for one another. You can't give anything until you truly believe that you did nothing to gain everything. Let's pray. Jesus, we certainly thank you yet again this morning um, for how rich your gospel is, for how gracious you are, for, for how incredibly kind you are to sinners like us. Jesus, would you give us sight of the glory that we have in you that we might be freed from trying to grasp at glory ourselves? Would you show us the identity that we have in you that we would not live our lives trying to establish an identity? Would you show us the eternal weight we bear in you so that we can relate to one another, not as trying to gain glory but as those giving it away? Jesus, there are so many people hurting in this city and beyond. There are so many living in darkness and slavery. There are so many in pain. Would you teach us this lesson on unity that we might move forward and strive side by side for the sake of your gospel? Would you take this church and make it militant in the way that your scriptures call us to, not with swords and spears, but with prayers prayers and the gospel, and mercy and justice. Would you so establish us in your gospel that we sacrifice everything for others to know you? In your name we pray.